Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Race for the Ring, Episode 95, The Power of Should with Elisa Stamps. You're listening to The Race for the Ring. I am your host, Mindy Barnett. I'm an entrepreneur, motivational author, keynote speaker, television contributor, and a single mom. Since re-entering the dating world after my divorce, I found dating life eye-opening. In the age of Tinder, Bumble, and Hinge, there seems to be more horror stories and humor than happy endings among my friends and social circles. And I want to know why. Each week, we'll chat with a different dating queen or king, socialite or relationship expert, and explore the many facets of dating today, pitfalls to steer clear from, and how to find the finest fish in the sea. Get ready, set, go. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Race for the Ring. We have a really lively conversation. And by lively, I don't mean like super high energy, like I'm coming off to you right now. It's really important topic we're going to be diving into today, um, predominantly about gaslighting and also obviously tying in uh, what that looks like when you're involved with a narcissist or if you have narcissistic parents or a friend in your life who's a narcissist or a coworker or perhaps a boss. Um, we have an expert who wrote a book that's basically a recovery journal called the Gaslighting Recovery Journal. Her name is Alisa Stamps. She's a psychologist um, and also licensed uh, social worker. She uh, has an expert uh, practice in uh, working with narcissistic victims, folks predominantly who had parents who are narcissists. But we also talk about what that looks like when you're involved romantically with someone who has this personality disorder that can be quite quite debilitating for the victim, to say the least. Um, Just to give you a little insight, though. So gaslighting is a word that we you may be familiar with, you may not be familiar with. So we're going to explain a little bit about what that is in our conversation initially. But I wanted to just share with you that it's not actually um, no, like recognized in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That's basically the Bible for psychologists. Um, it's, so it's not really, a, a, I guess, like a clinical diagnosis, if you will, but it's something that a lot of 
a lot of therapists and um, psychological experts use to determine cate- like basically characteristics of narcissism. And it's essentially when someone tells you something um, and they sort of make you believe that you're wrong. You could accuse them of something, say, and then they switch it on you and they flip it around and they make you feel like you're actually doing the wrong thing and you wind up apologizing. It's sort of like making you kind of question yourself and your sanity. Um, It's really awful. And um, it really does make you kind of question your own reality, which I think is quite scary. But I just wanted to share, um, we did a little research in putting the show together and I don't talk about about this in the actual uh, interview process with Alisa, but I, I thought this was really cool. So I wanted to share with all of you where this term gaslighting comes from. So it started from a play, actually, um, a play that was back in 1938. And the, sh- the play was called Gaslight. And it basically um, focused on a protagonist, her husband, who intentionally worked to make her believe that she can no longer trust her own perception of reality, which is basically what the narcissist does. So that's why we call it gaslighting, right? So one of his many tactics in this play and then eventually became a movie that he used was to turn down the gas-powered lights in their home so that they'd flicker throughout the house. So you, I'm sure you're familiar. You see those flickering lights a lot, you know, with the gas. I think they're so pretty. A lot of, like, high-end restaurants and hotels have them. But in their home, I guess they kept them on full so they wouldn't flicker. But he would lower it so it would indeed flicker. And then when she asked him why the lights were flickering, he'd say... They're not flickering. What are you talking about? So she thought she was basically losing her mind and going insane. So that's where this all kind of came from. Um, So as you can see, this is a really dangerous tactic that narcissists use um, and something that we're going to go into so you can recognize it and run the other direction if you can, um, as well as some other uh, key things that narcissists do. We tie it into like the love languages and what the love languages actually mean to a narcissist versus someone who is not a narcissist. So I think this is really a really valuable conversation and hopefully will shed a lot of light into your lives and avoid you a lot of pain and heartache. So without further ado, let's get right to it with Alisa Stamps. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing on this lovely Friday? I am great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to get into this conversation. So on the Race for the Ring, periodically, we always seem to go backwards, not backwards, but we we go back to the topic of narcissism. Um, It's of interest to my listeners and... Sadly, it's sort of part of our universe, right? Whether it's in a romantic relationship or something that we're seeing in the office or even with a parent or friend, in fact. So people in that category, um, personality disorder, can definitely um, make their way into our lives. And the sad part of it is that if you don't know the warning signs and you're not if you maybe not experience a narcissist yet in your life, you can fall victim. So I think it's relevant. Certainly, it's important to talk about, especially in the romantic space, which the show is about. So the first um, 
one of the first things that happens after the love bombing phase is gaslighting, right? You dedicated a book to that topic. Before we get into some of that, can you share with us a little bit about what that is? Because I think there's some confusion um, about what that word that's not even in the DSM, but it is technically a, a yes. psychological word <laughs> means. Yes, thank you. And I appreciate you bringing that up because I think it's a word that is more and more commonly known and mm-hmm. sometimes used incorrectly. So what I would say is that gaslighting is a tactic of a narcissist, which, you know, I use narcissism as a spectrum kind of disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a tactic where their kind of goal is to implant psychological doubt onto their target so that the target begins to question their own reality question themselves and then kind of become really dependent on the narcissist as sort of the expert for their life. Um, so a couple quick questions yeah. um, in, in that in that thing, so to speak. So when um, the narcissist does that, do you think the narcissist knows that they're doing that? Or is that just common, like second nature for a narcissist? You know, I get asked that question a lot. And here's what I would say. I would say if you're on the really significant end of the spectrum where you are like textbook narcissist, I would say maybe. Um, but also remembering that, you know, somebody in that cluster B realm of personality disorders, their reality is not reality. Mm. Um, but I think if you're more on the end, you know, the lower end of that spectrum, more maybe in the histrionic borderline personality with some narcissistic Mm -hmm. traits, um, you know, realm, I think it's almost like air. Like, I don't even know that sometimes people realize they're doing it. Hmm. So interesting. Okay. So if someone is um, the textbook version, you yeah. think that they're they're purposely, obviously, like manipulating, and they have like a, I guess like a, a not a conspiracy, but they they obviously have like a, a thought plan in place that they're going to get this person to sort of like second guess themselves. Can you give us an example of what that might look like? Sure. Um, okay. We are living through it right now. If you look at what's happening in Ukraine. Mm. propaganda that Putin and his cronies are kind of cranking out and dispelling um, the realities of what's actually happening versus what Putin would like people to believe is happening. There Mm -hmm. is an example of it at a macro level. Okay. How about on a a micro level that maybe like a relationship and it doesn't have to be a real antidote. Can you just sort of think of one that might be appropriate to kind of convey what this is to someone who's listening? Yeah, sure. So one that I think is, is kind of, you know, easy to understand is when we say something and then the narcissist maybe has a retort back and, it's, it's actually, you know, kind of a, a below the belt type of comment. And then the narcissist responds with, well, I was just joking. I mean, mm-hmm. you know how to take a joke, right? So then in our minds, we're questioning, well, oh, maybe I was I supposed to laugh at that? I guess it is funny. I guess, you know what I mean? So it's that. Yes, you know, yes. That really I, 
I was once with someone and I remember being upset about something a lot of different times, but like just for whatever, for argument's sake, like a scenario, like yeah. without mentioning too many details. And then at the end of the conversation, I was like apologizing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Like, yeah. <laughs> but like, wait, is it me? Am I, am I going yes. crazy? Like I really thought that I thought I was losing my mind. So that's exactly it. When we're questioning ourselves, when we're apologizing for something that actually the narcissist did, yeah, they're making us feel bad for questioning them or putting up a boundary. That's an example. Absolutely. So in your book, can you talk to us a little bit about what what you share with your readers and things like that in this way. And the mission, I guess, is so people are more um, in tune to what this looks like to sort of like run away if they can. I mean, if it's in a relationship, if it's a parent, it's a little harder to obviously cut the tie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book is is written in journal form. So um, I think of it as just a place to reflect on sort of questions, writing prompts, exercises that I've offered. And I tried to organize it pretty sequentially so that things sort of build upon one another as you're reading and working through it. And I would say, you know, once you're finished, as if, you know, as the same as what's in a 12-step kind of thought process, it's great to go back and rework it a little bit because every time we do it, we're going to be in a different spot. So it's, it's bringing things to people's attention, helping them become more familiar with gaslighting, with narcissistic tactics, but also a place that's their own for healing um, and reflecting and exploring. Do you think when people are taking the time to actually do the writing and stuff that helps in a, in a way to kind of, I find that for myself, right? Not necessarily just with this topic, but in general, when I'm writing something, I wrote two books. So when every time I would write about something that was controversial or like sort of like uh, um, on a darker side of something I was experiencing, it really let me kind of reflect and look at it from a different perspective and almost was a healing and therapeutic process. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, you know, I tried to put things in here too that maybe um, were not yet in people's awareness, and simply just discovering something that we didn't know about ourselves or we didn't know that was included in our healing journey. I think is already a step and a shift. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in your practice, um, do you see uh, this sort of situation with gaslighting and narcissism overall, like in a variety of different categories? And can you explain a little bit about what someone might experience? I mean, I know people obviously listening to this show are listening for dating advice, sure. but they might come encounter they might encounter a narcissist in their boss or a coworker or a friend. I definitely have a girlfriend who's a narcissist, um, a friend of mine, and I'm separated because it's a toxic yeah. situation. I mean, it happens, right? And Absolutely. it's not just a boyfriend girlfriend situation. No, no, we can come across, um, you know, people with narcissistic traits with those cluster B traits in any place in our lives. You know, it can be our, our family system. So I, my specialty area is working with adult children of narcissists. Mm-hmm. What I've usually found is that if we've come from that kind of family system, chances are we're more susceptible to those types of relationships, be it a work situation, romantic situation, friendship situation, 
um, you know, later in our lives. So it can, it really can take its toll in any place in, in our, in our own personal lives. And, you know, I work with folks a lot about this idea of beginning to set boundaries and what mm-hmm. that looks like, what that feels like. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. carry over for sure. The adult children of the narcissist, I'm curious, do they then, do you find that they then gravitate to partners that are narcissists as well? Because it's a habitual situation when you're looking for love or anything, that's what they think the norm is? Yeah, I would say that they've probably, if they haven't ended up, let's say, partnering um, in a, you know, marriage or spousal type situation, they've at least encountered it once or twice in their previous dating situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you're trying to show them through your therapy that obviously that's not healthy and the reasons why. And what are some of the things that they suffer most from when they have a parent that is a narcissist? Yeah. So I would say the underlying core belief that adult children from narcissists walk away with is the belief that they're just not good enough. That's and sad. Not deserving. Yeah, it's really sad. And, and, you know, not deserving, very unworthy, and the self-concept has just been destroyed. I could see that because I, I definitely think as a romantic situation that you would feel that way. So when you have a parent that's treating you like that, that must be so, so detrimental and traumatic. Yes. So you work on tools and teach them, obviously, that that or help them learn, I guess. You're not really yeah. teaching them, but yeah, yeah, realize that that isn't the case. Right. And it's been done usually at such an early age that we just believe it because it's mm-hmm. our parent. It's a person that's supposed to love us unconditionally, that's supposed to be on our side. Um, so there's a lot of belief and we have to sort of begin to dismantle those core beliefs of that self-concept and, and work towards bringing in, you know, new skills, new attributes, new characteristics, or uncovering perhaps ones that were always there, but we just weren't aware of. Right. 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 Uh, so sick. Okay. So um, sticking with gaslighting for just a few minutes, if I may. Sure. Um, so if you are in a scenario where you think you're being gaslighted, what are some of the things that you can do to pull yourself out of the situation other than just walking away from the person? Like, how do you counter that? Like, can you give us a few scenarios and some actionable takeaways yeah. that we can implement? Okay, perfect. Yeah, sure. So, so the first thing I would say is to begin to really stand in your own truth your own authentic truth. If you believe that this happened and you know exactly the way something happened or what was said, there's no harm in actually beginning to document it so you can reflect back on things um, so that when it perhaps happens again in the relationship, you can be, you know, no, wait a minute. We've been down this road. I have it written right here. So that might be the first step. Um, The other step is, uh, you know, another step I would say is beginning to really work with setting boundaries with, you know, simple things like that's not acceptable for you to talk to me like that. No, that's not the way it happened. Yes, maybe you believe that we are disagreeing on this. Just beginning to simply set those boundaries. Of course, making certain that it's a safe situation, but um, the more we can boundary up, the, you know, the more we're going to combat the the tactics that the narcissist is going to use. What does the narcissist do when you set the boundary? Well, 
I oftentimes say to people, you know, you can set a boundary and then you may have to brace for impact, meaning we may experience narcissistic rage that can look like a variety of things that can like look what? What does that look like? It can look like actual verbal abuse. It can look like silent treatment. It can look like, um, you know, the narcissist sort of brushing past it and disregarding anything you're saying. It can look like this sort of flying monkeys thing where they go to other people and try and get them on board to, Mm. you know, be in their alliance. Um, It can be a variety of things. And hopefully with the work, uh, we can begin to have emotional distance where we're just not as affected by that type of thing happening. Sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, as you said, it might mean going low contact with people. It might mean going no contact with people. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it depends on the scenario. It was easy for me to cut this person off because right. she um, wasn't, she's not my sister. She's not my mom. Right. You know, I, she doesn't live that close to me. We don't have a lot of mutual friends in common. So it was not necessarily the most difficult scenario for me to encounter, but I definitely can see how it could be hard, especially if it's somebody that is you have mutual friends and you're in the same social circles and things like that. Okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit about now um, the love languages. So I read this book. I'm sure a lot of our listeners did too. That talks about the five love languages. I actually did a show about it. It was very, very cool. Um, But you're saying there's a sixth language or word, I guess, love language, that can be implemented into each of these five languages, if you will. Yes. And that is should. So first explain to us what you mean by that. And then we're going to go through each of the steps or phases of love right. and, and kind of explain to our listeners, or you will, um, and I'll ask you questions <laughs> about what that means to a narcissist versus someone who isn't a narcissist. Yeah. So, you know, I refer to should as sort of the things that we learn from the narcissist that should happen. We should feel this way. We should be beholden. We should be walking on eggshells, all this sort of stuff. There's a lot of shoulding that we do all over ourselves. I, that is, I cannot take credit for that. That's not mine, but I love it because I think it really makes sense. So, you know, when I get folks and they come to work with me a lot of time, there's all these shoulds that have been imposed on themselves, but really projected there by the narcissist. So, um, you know, I thought it might be interesting to take a look at love languages and see how the narcissist may interpret that or how we've experienced the narcissist interpreting that. Okay. So let's go. I love it. Okay. So the first love language, um, is basically, um, well, I'm looking for it. Sorry. Let's see. The, the is, oh my gosh, where is it? I had it in my notes here. Um, gifts. Okay. So receiving gifts. Mm-hmm. So, um, I took this test and this was one of mine, but it wasn't a high one. It was like a lower. I think it was like maybe second or third. So um, by gifts, receiving gifts, you like presents, not doesn't necessarily have to be diamonds, just anything like, you know, um, thoughtful or thinking of you Um, flowers could be they could pick the flowers or card. It could be anything. Right. So bottom line is they're bringing you a present. So what is that? What does that look like to the narcissist? So <laughs> what does that what does that look like? Um I think it's complicated and I think they can present as incredibly generous. 
I think narcissists are generous. I think they can be incredibly generous, but Mm. here's the caveat that it's really to benefit them. Mm -hmm. They get Mm -hmm. the accolades, right? Oh, your, your mother's so generous. Yeah. But guess what? There's a lot of strings. So yes, I had a situation like that with, I'm not going to say too much with someone that was like that in my life and isn't anymore. It was like buying, 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 but it was always, there was always not necessarily that moment, but think there would be some sort of string attached. It was a manipulative net and like maneuver, if you will. Yeah. 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 I think their favorite thing to um, say to you is, you know, but look at all I give you, look what I've given you. So Mm -hmm. there's that string. The other thing that I think is really weird, and I've talked about this with clients and had some experience myself, is that Mm -hmm. narcissists will make you work for the gifts. Like they'll give you something maybe that they like, but you have to like go, I don't know, you know, they'll give you tickets to a concert, but you have to go trade them in or something because it doesn't work with your schedule. Do you know what I mean? But it'll be like very involved or they'll ask you, well, what do you think you might want versus like just surprising? And they they make you work for it, which is, I think, strange. Why do you think that's the case? Again, I think it's another way to put a string on it. I think that when you then become, let's say, annoyed because you're doing the work for your own gift or you know, they'll, they'll spin it as you being ungrateful. Well, I got you this, you know, what more do you want? Yeah. Yeah. It's another way for them to kind of like twist, switch the, flip the switch is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. All right. So how about quality time? So that's another love language. And that's obviously wanting to spend time with their partner and like, doesn't, you know, like just making sure that you're both focused and present and all of that. So what does that look like for a narcissist? Do they enjoy quality time or is it a big facade? I think it's a facade. I don't necessarily think it's possible. Um, I think it's on their terms. So they may change the plans. They may constantly ask you questions about when we're going to spend time. What are we going to do? Well, what about this? And then if something changes, they can go up for grabs. Um, they can be incredibly emotionally needy too. So the time they can. Yeah. Why? So I think often narcissists will put themselves and anybody in that cluster B realm will is, is very well versed at putting themselves in the victim role. Mm. So they want you to have to caretake. Mm-hmm. So their time could be, you know, you really kowtowing to their emotional needs and they expect everybody to take care of them at the time. Um, so it's just, again, strings complicated and can be quite exhausting. Do they tend to have a lot of drama or create drama? Yes. Absolutely. Why is that? Why do you think that's the case? Same reason? I think it's... They the- need the attention? Yeah, I think they... they- tend to need attention. Um, They also, a lot of times, right, their core fear, the narcissist's core fear is the fear of abandonment. Yeah. Anytime that gets activated, real or perceived, they are going to react and engage and try and fill their narcissistic supply. Interesting. Okay. Affirmation. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. So that's like, I love you. You're my right. bestie. Yeah. I can't live without you. But I've read, and I think your articles will confirm that yeah. narcissists isn't really capable of love, right? They're not really capable of it. They love themselves. I, or maybe they don't actually, they don't love themselves. That's part of the problem. Right. But their main priority is themselves. Do they ever really have the the ability to love another human being, like truly love someone? No. I I don't think so. I think they sometimes love in the best way that they can, which mm-hmm. may not be the way that is the other person needs. Right. You know, which most likely is not the way the other person needs. Um, and they operate from that place of idealization devaluation. So they can tell you how amazing you are in one breath and then snatch the rug out from under you with a critical comment in the next. So it's very, very confusing. And it's a lot of mixed messaging. Um, but Why do they do that, um, if I may ask? Like, what is the purpose of giving you, like, a compliment and then kind of, like, break you down, like, two seconds later? Why Why would they do you think in that moment of the compliment um, they actually did feel that? Or is that part of the whole gaslighting mentality? I think it's part of gaslighting and manipulation. Also, mm-hmm. to create this dependency. Also, to make certain that the target can't make their own choices for anything. You know, something that I hear a lot with folks is, I, I don't even know what I like. I don't know my own likes or dislikes because I've had to cater to the whims and the emotional needs of the narcissist. So, like, I'm completely unaware of my own world in that sense. Mm-hmm. We, we've had we've had to anticipate every whim of the narcissist and they can be quite charming. They can be quite charismatic. So that's another piece of confusion kind of going into that love bombing phase. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where we can't see through the haze of that sometimes. Mm -hmm, Totally. So back to the, um, the affirmation situation with the saying, I love you and feeling all that. What's the should with that? What's the, what's the should in that? Um, I would say a lot of times we feel that we have to or should say these words back to them. Uh, uh, you know, something so like, they do it because they feel obligated or they just they they need to say it so that the person stays in their life. Yes, and that we then say it back to them. Uh-huh. They need to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Emojis is a popular way this happens, I think. The narcissist might like say things with all these like heart emojis and kiss emojis. And if you're, let's say an adult child of the narcissist and you're really working on lower contact or trying to create emotional distance, you know, in the past you may have felt obligated to return it the same way, because if you didn't, you would hear about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that can be part of these shoulds of saying, I love you as well. I gotcha. Okay. All right. How about service? So um, by acts of service, that's basically what we do for each other. Um, You know, a favor, going out of your way for the other person, whatever it may be. So what does that on narcissists should in that um, love language look like? Um, I think it's similar to the whole presence thing. That... um, you're supposed to grow attached to them. You should grow attached to them. Again, they're going to throw up in your face. Look at all I do for you. Look at everything I do. And look what you don't do for me. 
Mm-hmm. That's that driving the knife in manipulation tactic again. Does the narcissist ever expect service from the other person? Yes, I believe. And what it, what, how do they, what does that look like? I think that really, you know, plays out in entitlement. Even when they go to a restaurant, let's say, or they're on an airplane, they expect to be catered to. They feel they are entitled to have the best service that everyone should um, be at their beck and call. If not, then, you know, oh, that place is terrible. The, the servers didn't treat me well. But they most definitely a lot of times will be overly demanding. It sounds like they're snobby. They can be. They can Ugh. be. Yeah. <laughs> Awful. You know, I'm watching this uh, show right now. I'm like so obsessed with it um, on Netflix called Inventing Anna. Uh, Did you see that? I could not get enough. And then I had to watch like the 2020 interview. And oh, I-, I can't. I'm watching that too. Yeah. Oh, I'm just waiting no. to get through the, um But I feel like she's like a classic, at least yeah. from what I'm, I'm only halfway through, but she's has a lot of other personality disorders and I do believe she might be delusional as well, yeah. possibly a slightly psychotic, but, um, I, I think she's a narcissist in the way she, yeah. Yeah. yeah completely yeah. narcissistic. And then I would say and histrionic. She's definitely that too. Yep. Yeah. And then bordering into that antisocial, which is a whole different thing, just because yes. of yes. lack of remorse and not really caring who she hurts. Exactly. Yeah. Breaking the law. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. So moving on to the another love language, I believe it's the final love language. Yes. The yeah. final one, physical touch, which yeah. is huge for narcissists, right? Yeah. Because they thrive on that. Is that right? I think they do. Um, I think that they can really manipulate through physical affection, sexual affection, sexual intimacy, Um, I think, again, you're dealing with somebody who has very muddled boundaries, if any at all. So Mm -hmm. that's going to possibly play out in a very physical sense, for sure. So they're very sexual because that's how they manipulate their victims if it's a romantic situation? It can be. Um, actually, there's a gentleman by the name of Don, Dr. Ken Adams who does – I took a workshop of his. Um, okay. does a lot of work with men that are enmeshed with their mothers. And what he found is, you know, a lot of sexual dysfunction. And I would say because of the muddled boundaries, I am not saying – that these men had sex with their mothers. That is not what I'm saying. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. That's a whole problem. Yeah. Yeah, No, I'm just laughing at your expression. (laughs) I get it. Yes. They're just like, how they get unhealthy connection to their mothers. So it's creating a dysfunction in the bedroom with their partners, because I guess the mother's like such a strong figure in their lives. Like, unhealthily like not in a not in a healthful way it's right okay um, and it can look like a shutdown too it can look like you know very disconnected to our own bodies to our own femininity to our own sexuality Um, it really can play out in that ways in those in those ways narcissism um yes for the narcissist with with this idea of physical touch right 
<laughs> so if you are involved with someone and you're seeing any of these things, like what is your advice to people listening? Like, how do we get out of this? And what do you do if you need to sort of stay and you're trying to combat yeah. this uh, tricky situation, to say the least? That's uh, obviously very unhealthy. Yes. I mean, first and foremost, I would say to get your own support if feasible. There is so much information out there now, um, so many clinicians that are specializing in this, that have YouTube channels on this, that are doing podcasts on this, um, but definitely getting your own support. There's some great resources available. Um, and then just beginning to do your own work to really find your true authentic self, begin the work of boundary setting as well. How do you, what's the first couple of things that someone can do for the boundaries? I know that's, we, on my school in class, we talk a lot about the importance yeah. of setting boundaries, like almost every class. Um, well, in one of my classes, not both, the one yeah. class I'm taking um, yeah. on group therapy and stuff like that. So it's not easy though. I mean, I know I struggle with that personally. I know a lot of my classmates share that they struggle with that yeah. too. Um, I have friends that struggle with that. So how do you really, what are the first kind of things that you can do to protect yourself and stay guarded and set the boundaries with someone that you think is obviously in need of the boundary? Yeah. I mean, I would say like, it doesn't have to be a race. We can go at whatever pace feels comfortable. It could be not always answering the phone when they call right away. Mm -hmm. It could be not answering a text, not responding, taking more time to respond seeing what that feels like for ourselves and then beginning to do, you know, more complex boundary setting of saying, no, I no, I don't care to go to that. Um, no, please don't speak to me that way. But without offering the explanation, because narcissists often will demand explanation and we don't owe an explanation to anybody. So kind of practicing that for ourselves as well is a great way to start. So when you say no and they want the explanation, how, what do you say? I'm not giving you an explanation. You don't need one. You just, um, you know, you can do what's called gray racking where you just really are devoid of emotion, devoid of any details and just say, no, no, I'm sorry. Not even I'm sorry. No, I, I'm not going to be going tonight. And I say to, to, to try to put it back on them, you know, I see that you're upset, but I'm not going tonight. Why are you upset? Why does that upset you? Why do you want to go? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They want engagement. They want. Yeah, they thrive on that. Yeah. Yes, they're energy vampires. So the less we give them, the hopefully the more they're going to understand that we're not playing this game anymore. Right. And they'll just back away mm -hmm. like a bad dog and find another bone. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, thank you. You've been wonderful, um, Alisa, yeah. having you on and great information. So um, tell us a little bit about where we can find your book and you. Sure. Sure. So um, the name of the book is called The Gaslighting Recovery Journal. It is for sale on Amazon. There's also a link on my website, which is www.alisastamps.com. Um, so you can find me there. I'm on Instagram. If you want to follow, um, it's at alisastamps.therapist. And yeah, I think that's all the places to find me.
Okay, awesome. And you're in the city of brotherly love, um, my hometown of Philly. So that's cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Sure. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Race for the Ring. If you liked today's episode, please write us a review. They can make or break a good podcast, just like a dull dude can be the kiss of death to a date. I'll catch you next week. And in the meantime, be sure to say hi and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My handles and contacts are in the show notes. It's been my pleasure to have you along for today's dating debate. Bye-bye. 365 day returns.